shit. <clears throat> um, uh, hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to part two of Latoya Amons and a House of Horror. We are very happy to have you all back with us for another finally put together episode. We hope you all had a lovely week since we last borrowed your ear and that many good things have happened in your lives. We absolutely do, guys. Please know that we value our listeners and really do enjoy the feedback and suggestions. And I seriously hope my voice is not ruining your delicate appetite. Yeah, fuck, or your sex drive, for Christ's sake. Oh, no, hey, it's not that bad. Come on. Nah, your voice is fire, bro. It's mine that they don't like. The emails prove it, and I don't blame them. I feel like mine is sort of like if you mix the romantic holler of the hyena and the scream of a macaque. No joke, that is what I hear in my head with every syllable spoken. And that could be to the intense, and I mean intense, tinnitus that I have. That has got to suck worse than golf, or baseball, or men's volleyball. It's pretty bad. Probably not as bad as any of those games, but the ringing is just like nonstop all the time. And there are multiple tones going on in both ears separately. Like, it isn't just one tone. It's it's many different tones, sort of drones, like high-pitched drones. Very high-pitched drones. And they sort of oscillate and do weird things. And there used to be this weird clicking thing. And when, when it happened, I couldn't help but, like, imagine that there was some sort of insect in there doing that weird thing with their legs when they groom themselves, you know, like scratching their, ugh, <laughs> the click, man. It's kind of gone away, but it used to happen all the time. But it's probably more that I've just gotten used to it, I think. But it's The whole time I've just been imagining, like, you actually just forgot that you have headphones on and the click you're hearing is just like the beat of <laughs> some song you're listening to, <laughs> like the drum kit in the bed. You're like, oh, yeah, there's all these tones, you know, and it's, it sounds like the Eagles, uh, you know. It sucks. Sounds... <laughs> this is no joke. And I don't know if that's what it's like for everybody, but that's what it's like for me. Uh, no, I'm sure. I'm sure it's real. I'm sure. Truthfully, I can hear my wife fart when she's in another room and she thinks I can't hear it. It's adorable. You know, it really is. And you know what? Before we go on, I just want to give a huge shout out to Colorado. Out of all the U.S. states, our largest audience is in Colorado, the Switzerland of America. So thank you guys so much for listening in and coming back. Thank you for coming back, you guys. Glad Denver's tuning in and Golden and uh, Colorado Springs. I'm actually not sure, but... Just hoping. And if you're not, well, I'm just speaking it into existence <laughs> right now. Right here, right now. Yeah, well, did you know that Colorado is also known as Columbine State? Whoa! Damn, I did not know that. That is kind of dark, not going to lie. Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, a plant, right? I think Columbine's a plant. Uh, it's either that or a large piece of farming equipment. Oh, that's a combine. So shows what I know. Yeah, you probably shouldn't ask me any more questions. <laughs> well, all right. I'm going to tell you something then. All right. It was actually almost named Idaho, which some say is a native Kiowa word meaning enemy. But this has not been confirmed as of 2022. And, of course, the name Colorado is of Spanish origin and means colored red due to the color of the sandstone uh, soil in the area. But our dear Coloradans... Please don't forget to spread the podcast far and wide. And at least a mile high. At least a mile high. And the state that takes second place for listeners to the show is frickin' New York. And we give another massive shout-out to our fans in New York. You guys know we love you. Frank and Harry also say hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Hey, youse. How yous doing, huh? I hope the L train isn't full of ratchets and wax, you know? All's pretty Gucci over here. I'm a bit lit at the moment because I was shook about that crusty tripping a minute down there at the bodega at 192nd South 9th Street. All is cool. All is tight. No worries on my part. I can't say the same for my partner over here, Harry. Hey. Hey, Harry. Harry. You motherfucker. Oh, hey, what's up, Frank, you fucking Johnny Pump? You son of a bitch. Ah, you know I loves you, B. You know I got you, Frank. I just need an L to get me going because I'm a bit dread right about now. And honestly, a bit smacked. Some grimy scrub tried to scrap as I was beasting burpees in full uniform down there with all the strap hangers and birds. A lot of sus activities happening down there, you know. But I told him, hey. I'm on my way to Link, you know, and uh, you know. then I booked it down to 34th on my way to that joint you took me to. Hey, remember that? Yeah, the yeah, tits? yeah, yeah. Anyway, I was bugging and wilding all over the place, Frank. You know, that's real talk, Harry, but you know that we're supposed to be saying hello to our boys over in town, over in the city, the city of cities, the Big Apple, Harry, the Big Easy, the city that never sleeps. The capital of the world. The gay capital of the world. You know? Frank and I had a real good time out in Vegas. Made some big bets. Even bigger mistakes. But hey, what do you do, you know? But uh, we're on our way back home, babies. We dead ass out to come back and get back to busting chops and hustling criminals. You know what I mean? We fucking love yous, guys. New York. Fucking New York. New York, baby. We're on our way. Thanks, Frank and Harry. Yeah, good to hear from those guys. I always kind of wonder if they're doing all right, you know. But, yeah, they sound like they're doing just fine. Sounds like they have it going. And uh, we'll uh, meet back up with you guys at a later time. Yeah, yeah, Uh, But after that, Georgia is the next state. Another gigantic shout-out to our homies and homets down there in Georgia. You are all our Georgia peaches. We love all of you guys. And I hope we get invited to Georgia because I want to go check it out and see the woods and the gardens and the food and the people and more specifically the women. And did you know, Scott, that Georgia has the nickname of the Goober State? Did you know that? The Goober State. No, that makes me, uh, man, there's all kinds of images that come up to my mind from hearing the Goober State. Uh, I think I'll probably save some of those images for a later podcast, but... I, too, would love to go to Georgia. I mean, you got the Georgia pine, you got sweet tea, you know, pecan pie. Like, what else What else is there, man? It's just, yeah. You got everything. I want to go. I want to go. I'm not shy about well, it. Apparently, and I did not know this, a goober is an old word used for the peanut, which is, in fact, the official state crop of Georgia. Oh, okay. Well, it's all becoming clear now. See, in my culture, we call peanuts cacahuates, you know? Oh. So I wasn't expecting goober to be the word, the alternate word for peanut. That is a surprise for me. Yeah, so maybe some of our listeners down there in Georgia can send us some some of their favorite goobers so we can, uh, you know, have a sample. Yeah, send us your goobers. <laughs> Show us your goobers. <laughs> Show us your goobers. Show us your goobers. We should make Hell t-shirts. Yeah. We'll make That's t-shirts for you guys we'll, we'll, for the podcast. Show us your goobers. It'll be just yeah. a picture of a peanut Show us sideways goobers. on its side, so like the two bulges right there <laughs> in the shell. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, there you go. Hell yeah. All right. Well, n- now, Scott. I like it. Moving on with like the story. It. Yes, yes, yes. Some people can hear, or maybe I should say they think they can hear voices from another realm. 
another plane of existence, a ghostly plane where spirits, ghosts, and demons alike, among whatever else, seem to linger and slither about each other in an oily mess like it's an early Saturday morning at the Old Country Buffet, right there at uh, 1634 East 80th Avenue in always Mary Maryville, Indiana. Really beautiful place. Love it there, especially on Saturday mornings. I make sure to be early and get the syrups ready. Yeah, they take the uh, all-you-can-eat to a whole other level down there at the Old Country Buffet. Excellent. Or anyway, last Excellent. week, we started discussing the strange happenings that were occurring in LaToya Amon's house that she shared with her three children and her mother. Uh, 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 Coop and 200 demons and at least one ghost. That's right. Yeah, along with 200 demons and at least one very lonely ghost. How could I forget? Aside from the 200 demons and at least one ghost, the family was certain, without a doubt, that there was an evil presence in that house. We learned of accounts that LaToya's 12-year-old daughter was mysteriously levitated above her grandmother's bed by an unseen force. And Rosa, the grandmother, witnessed a shadowy figure pacing back and forth in the living room from her bedroom after she suddenly awoke from sleeping. And they would hear the creepy-ass sound of footsteps slowly climbing the basement stairs up to the kitchen. So scary, dude. I can't even imagine hearing that in the middle of the night. Oof. Yeah, footsteps. Hey, so I actually have a pretty intense ghostly footstep story if you'd like to hear it. Oh, of course we would. Lay it on us, bro. the listeners are like that? Absolutely. The listeners want that? Absolutely. All right, I'll try to be really quick. Is that what you always say, or is that just what they always tell you to do? <laughs> oh, chingados, pinche pendejo, sinvergüenza. Nice, nice. Is that good? Been hitting the old Libras de Espanol. I like it. I like okay. it. <laughs> so many, many, many long years ago, I was over at a friend's house. Now, uh, I must have been. We must have been around seven or eight, no older than nine, and we were the only two there. Nobody else was there. Everyone's gone. Which we didn't. His two parents and his sister. They were all gone. Wow, that's uh, a lot more freedom than I was given when I was eight and nine years old. But yeah, continue. Go ahead. The house had a super creepy basement, and then there was the main floor and the laundry room where the basement stairs led to. Then that room led to, into an, pretty much the main floor. So as you stand right where the laundry room opens to the main floor, to the left were stairs going up to the second floor, and there were maybe 15 to 20 stairs there. To the right was a bedroom and a bathroom uh, for the, on the same side as the laundry room. Looking straight forward would be the front door, and about 10 o'clock to the left would be the kitchen, and then off to the right would be the living room. So it's pretty much an open floor. So upstairs were two or three bedrooms and a smaller common area. Now, not only was the basement super creepy, but the upstairs was super creepy as well, and honestly, the whole house is just creepy as shit. So we were upstairs in his room, which was the second bedroom down on the left. We were up there chilling, talking about whatever the hell seven- or eight-year-olds talk about on a very boring summer day, right? So downstairs... Right after you get to the bottom of the stairs, directly to the left, was one of those hanging pan racks with the hooks to hang your frying pans and shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, we had one of those, too. Yeah, they had one of those right there on the other side of the wall in the kitchen. And, of course, there were pots and pans hanging on these hooks as well as uh, a couple pots sitting on the counter below. So As you do, as you do. We're upstairs chilling in his room with the door open, and all of a sudden we hear footsteps coming up the stairs at a really, you know, regular pace, like someone's walking up, but kind of slowly, like kind of... Taking the time. But the sound of the creaks, you could tell it was a heavier person. I mean, we were maybe 100 pounds, I don't know. But we, we made, you know, we barely made the stairs creak ourselves. Um, but these creaks clearly were made from someone heavier. Uh, so we go absolutely silent because we're like, what the f- 
the fuck is that? Do you hear that? And we just hear it. Footsteps coming up. Yeah, no one's no one's supposed to be there. Right? No one's there. We didn't hear the front door open. There are two front doors. Nothing like nothing opened. Nothing closed. We hear Ooh. footsteps. The doors open, so we can peek out and look kind of down at the stair railing. So we're sitting there listening for the first six or seven steps, and they're definitely coming up the stairs. So we're like, "What the fuck?" And we just took a couple steps over from his bed to look out the door, and from there you could see down like where the stairway is, which led up to a flat part and then turned right for another like three or four steps. Um, but you could definitely see all the stairs. And down the stairway through the metal railing banister. Um, but when we looked, there was nothing there. And the steps stopped. So we're like, what the hell? You know, so we just sit back on the bed and we're silent. And we're like, obviously, you're, we're cautious now. We're literally, we're scared listening for these footsteps again. And then out of nowhere, this tremendous crash of dishes happens in the kitchen. We're like, holy shit. You know, we could hear pots and pans falling to the floor and rolling around on the linoleum. And then right then and there, we looked at each other, and we just fucking booked it out. We ran down the stairs. We fucking ran past the kitchen. We could see the pots and pans, and we just booked it out the two doors and just fucking ran, bro, to the other side of the yard. Whoa. Yeah. So yep. scary, dude. Oh, my dude, gosh. It, it was scary, man. It was been, definitely freaking scary. For sure. Woo. Yep. But you know what? While we wait for our parents to get back, why don't you give the best audience in the world what they came here for? I mean, they literally woke up for this segment. Yes, sir. Well, I think I think it is a good time for the old Trey Portray, or three for three, as we call it here in the good old U.S. of A. And speaking of the good old U.S. of A, Coop, I have a little bit of a, an American pastime-themed set of stories for us today. Okay. Now, when I think American pastime, I'm thinking ice-cold water... And a good game of baseball. Oh, well, it's interesting that you say that because the first story out of Texas A&M posted by Evan Gastaldo of the Newser homepage on May 2nd of this year is exactly about that favorite American pastime, Coop. Amazing. Apparently, in the middle of a college baseball game at Texas A&M, one of the 18-year-old players who was getting ready to take the field was suddenly struck by a stray bullet from a neighborhood conflict what a few blocks fuck? away. No way. Yes, sir. Luckily, the player is in stable condition and has been since the uh, the strike. But can you just imagine, like, you're getting there, it's a huge game, you're getting ready to step up to the plate, and then, bam, just out of nowhere, bullet just takes you out. You're like, whoa, what the hell was that? And then people are just like, bro, you got shot, you got shot. I just can't even imagine. Just a random shot, man. See, that's what people don't realize. They're out there, people like in cities, you know, uh, they get a gun, they think they're badass, they start shooting up in the air, you know. Watch this dude, and they start shooting up in the air. Those bullets are going to fall somewhere. Absolutely. Those bullets are going to land somewhere. Yeah, they're going to travel a great distance up in the air, and then they make a huge arc, and they come back down, and they land on shit. And people? So, apparently... Yes, and, and <laughs> yes, more to the point, and people. Apparently, police issued a felony warrant for DeMarco Banks, who's 20, and a 17-year-old male as well, who I'm sure is unidentified because he's a minor. Okay. But both of those men are believed to have fired their weapons. I'm sure they got some report um, from somebody at some point, you know, especially when the story broke on the news. People were like, I seen him. Right. Um, so, yeah, and then, you know what, they should be punished for that. This guy was just minding his own business, putting his fist in his glove, grabbing his bat, you know what I mean? Well, so he had his, he had his left hand gloved, and he was at the, he was ready to (laughs) bat. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, you know what? That's man? how they need I to don't play know it. A whole lot about these American pastimes. They, but... I think they're doing it all wrong, <laughs> or they've been doing it all wrong, yeah, and they need to wear wrong. a glove the... and hold the bat <laughs> so they can either catch the ball or yes, hit the ball. Yes. Why not? <laughs> exactly. More on that later. All right, we'll do a special baseball segment for 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 me to catch up. All right. This second story out of San Diego involves another favorite. American pastime. Coop, the ice cold water that you spoke of earlier, swimming. Oh, I love swimming. Now, yeah, me too. I have since I was a fetus, practically. Um, But this man in this story, Coop, wasn't actually swimming intentionally. And what I mean to say is his dog, as, you know, happens to some of us, got away from him in a moment of dog exuberance and ran straight into a pond. So the man jumped into said pond to save his life. Sure. Even though dogs can, you know, dogs can swim just fine. Yeah, all right. So he was only in the water for a little bit. This man's name was Jeff Bova. He was 41. He got a small cut on his arm at the time that he had jumped into the pond. Well, normally a small cut wouldn't set any of us back for any great amount of time, but this man literally dropped dead several weeks later of necrotizing fasciitis, which, if you don't know, is an infection that's caused by the flesh-eating bacteria, bro. Oh, man. Yes. That's nothing it, to mess with. It's one of those things that if, if you get it, I mean, uh, you're it's just, especially if you don't know that you have it, it quickly reproduces in your tissue, it moves through very rapidly, it gives off tons of toxins, and basically you drop dead. Apparently the kill rate if you do get infected is 20%. So 20% of people that become infected with the necrotizing fasciitis die, bro. Wow. That's crazy. Yes, absolutely. So unfortunately in the act of trying to help his dog get out of this pond, this 41-year-old man died. It says here that he developed really nasty blisters that kept oozing, and he said that it felt like acid coming down his arm. Yeah. Oh, dude. And, like, I don't know how many times, like, I have, I used to get cuts all over me, and that just makes me, this is one more thing that I am now afraid exactly. of. Exactly. I have a new unlocked fear. Thank you. Yes. Thanks, thanks, San Diego. Thanks, San Diego, and thanks, Jeff Bova, for really showing us and warning us. PSA, don't jump in brackish water. Exactly. It's just, it's one of those things that seems to come up like every year, or every couple years, another person dies from flesh-eating bacteria, and you're just like, oh my God. Just another reminder that it's still out there, folks. It's still out there. It's gross. Well, the last American pastime is more of a... Uh, it's not really a celebrated American pastime, but it is something that Americans are good at. We love to eat at home. We love to sit on the couch and park our butts on the in front of the TV and fire up the old boob tube and have a meal. And now it's even easier to do that because you can just call someone up, order your favorite food, and they will drive it to your house and deliver it to you. That's exactly what one Oscar Solis Jr., 30 years old, out of Pasco County in Florida did. But he wasn't interested in just having a meal, Coop. He was interested in murder. Oh, shit. Apparently, when the Uber driver showed up to his house, an associate, an Oscar Solis Jr., killed said Uber driver, dismembered him, and put him 
in trash bags and a cooler. Um, why? That is the question. Nobody knows. But apparently the Uber driver's wife phoned the police. So they checked into the last places that he had delivered. They rolled up to Solis's house and they started immediately finding evidence. His car was parked not that far away. His car keys and wallet were located in the home, as well as several trash bags and a cooler with various body parts. That is insane. Yeah, apparently the police released a statement saying that it was definitely a crime of passion. I mean, what they found they felt was demonic and that he was demonic. Apparently, Solis now faces multiple charges, including murder while engaged in a robbery, failure to register as a convicted felon, and he has several parole violations. He was released from an Indiana prison in January after serving just four years for an assault and a burglary conviction. And here he goes and does this just several months later. It's crazy. That is insane. Who? Oh, man, that's crazy why people just do that. I want to know why. What was the motive here? Was he robbing the guy? I'm sure answers to these questions will arise in the coming months or coming years, however long this this happens to take. Um, but there are some solid pieces of evidence, such as the ones I mentioned earlier. And in addition, investigators also got some surveillance footage, which shows the victim actually making the delivery. And then later on, two Hispanic men walk outside carrying heavy trash bags. So you do the math. Yeah, uh, people out there, be careful. Yep, it just kind of puts a different perspective on our favorite American pastimes, doesn't it, Coop? Yep. Well, that's the end of our favorite segment and everybody else's favorite segment, according to the emails. Très portrait. Not even just of the emails, but People Magazine. Um, Forbes. Forbes. Uh, what other ones were there? I think National Geographic TMZ. did one. TMZ yeah. has done no, numerous coverings, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Nat Geo has reached out repeatedly for me to do a, a literal spread, but I just I keep trying to say, you know, I'm just not feeling that comfortable with my body right now. It's so true, yeah. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe in a month or two. Right. So where we left off last week was right after LaToya and an unnamed person performed a ritual throughout the so-called demon house in an attempt to cleanse it. And at the completion of that ritual, LaToya felt that it was a massive success. Hell yeah. That only lasted three days, Scott. Hell nah. Three days? Three days. Well, I hope they enjoyed the brief respite. Me too. And after the calm of those three peaceful days, the family said that those demons then entered into and possessed LaToya and the three children. Whoa. But apparently, they left Rosa alone. Nobody fucks with Rosa, dude. Nobody and no thing ever fucks with Rosa Campbell. It wasn't difficult. I just gave them tree fitty, and they left me alone to make my pot roast and do all the things that the woman does, because ain't nobody else going to do it. Oh, she's Aww, such a sweet Rosa. Of course nothing would mess with her. I love oh, her. man. Yeah. According to Rosa, she said that she wasn't affected by the demons because she was born with protection from evil. Oh, wow. Must be nice. I mean, how does that work? Do you have to, like, do your parents have to do some kind of, like, checklist, like, spiritual checklist before they conceive you? Or who who cho- who chooses? Like, who gets this protection? I would like know? to know that. But it's said that those demons caused the children's eyes to bulge out of their sockets. 
and made their voices unnaturally deep for a child and made their smiles seem overly sinister and wicked. Oh, man. So the demons would come and go as they pleased. And when one of these signs or multiples of these signs were present, the family knew that the demons had returned. Now, Scott, what does it feel like, you know, uh, when when you're possessed by demons? Like, for you personally, what is it like? (laughs) What does that feel like? Tell the listeners. Well, I feel like it would be a lot easier to share that with listeners if I had indeed been possessed even once in my life. But I can't honestly make that claim. So you might want to ask somebody that's actually experienced full demonic possession. Oh, man. I thought you knew. All right, well, Latoya would say that when the demons were possessing her, she would feel very weak, lethargic, warm, and lightheaded. <laughs> oh, sounds like uh, she's, uh, you know, you know, um, having one. <laughs> oh, no. Come on, Scott. Your judgments might be a little bit premature. Now, you know the quote, everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree... It will live its whole life believing that it is stupid. Uh, well, yeah, I guess that's true. And Latoya also said that her entire body would convulse, would shake uncontrollably, and she said that she could do nothing about it. Okay, hold on now. Wait just a brickyard what? second, What's man. What's the problem? What is happening here? Just hold up. What do you mean? No, this lady is a walking lawn sprinkler, dude. She's clearly what? orgasming well, all over the place. Maybe. Out of embarrassment of it all, she's blaming the demons. All 200 of them. That's exactly what this is, and that's exactly what she's talking about. Well, these possessions, if you can call them that, would generally last about 30 seconds or so, give or take, you know, depending on various circumstances. You s- what? See what? what I mean, man? What do you mean? Like... It could be six seconds, that- 25 seconds, 70 seconds. <laughs> Various circumstances. Yeah, who knows what's going on? I don't know. Jeez. Nah, I'm just kidding. That last part oh, was not true. Man, just pulling my leg. Pulling your bastage. leg. You bastage. Other things that would go down would be things such as the youngest boy who was aged seven. He would sit in a closet talking to what was presumed to be a boy that no one else could see. And the other boy, the older brother, would describe what it felt like to be killed. Ugh, that is so grim and freaky. But things would soon escalate and become violent. Now, Rosa said that the youngest boy once literally flew out of the bathroom as if he was thrown. And another time, there was a headboard which fell on the daughter causing wounds that needed stitches. The 12-year-old daughter would go to visit with mental health professionals and tell them that she would have these moments of time where it felt like she was being choked and held down so she couldn't move. And she thought she heard this voice tell her that she will never see her family again and wouldn't live another 20 minutes. And Latoya said that some nights were so horrible that they had to check into hotels just to get away from it all and be able to sleep. And on April 19th, 2012, the family would go to their family physician, Dr. Jeffrey Arniyoku, who looks surprisingly similar to Keenan Thompson, by the way, from the hit show, Keenan and Kale. Uh, you remember that show, right, Scott? Oh, man. Not not only do I remember the show, but all that, so good. And then, uh, what was that What was that movie? Oh, yeah, Good Burger, man. Do you remember Good Burger? Oh, I Woo! loved Good Burger, Gosh, bro. I want to go back and watch that now. I need a dose of nostalgia. Honestly, I watch uh, one of those apps, Play-Doh TV or whatever, Pluto TV, 
Oh, and yeah, that yeah, movie yeah. is being shown right now. But I, nice. I haven't watched it yet, but I think I might have to after this. It's time to dust it off, homie. Yeah. But Latoya felt confident that the doctor would understand what they were going through. Now, hold on. Why would this doctor understand what they're going through? Is he a witch doctor or like some kind of shaman who has experience with these sort of circumstances? Like, how? Why would he know? Why would he understand any of this? Well, I think that they didn't know what else to do in seeing that this doctor, Dr. Anyoku, uh, you know, he was well-studied and intelligent. He's a doctor. And maybe they saw that the doctor was, you know, someone who was knowledgeable of all things. And maybe, you know, he just knew. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like... uh... I feel like they listen to one too many kids' songs. You know, uh, I called the witch doctor. He told me what to do. <laughs> I called the witch doctor. He told me what to do. He said, ooh, oh ee, God, ooh, yeah. ah, ah, ting, tang, walla, walla, bing, bang. You know? <laughs> yes. Maybe, man. Oh, I don't know, man. Boy. But you'd, ha- you'd have to ask her. All, all right. right. Well, if that's it, I'm, fuck- I'm never doing one of these stories ever again. And it must be your lucky day, my friend, because she is here with us right now to tell you all about it. Oh, what? Nah, I'm just kidding. She did not return emails, calls, fax, or the beeper. Oh. Well, that's probably because nobody these days uses emails, calls, fax, or beeper. Lies! I suppose you're right about that. Well, interestingly, at some point before LaToya and Rosa brought the children to Dr. Anyuku's, uh, like, I don't know, days or weeks before, there was an unnamed person who actually called the Department of Child Services on LaToya, thinking that the children were being abused or at the very least neglected. I'm not sure if anything was ever checked on by the DCS, but they were definitely notified when LaToya and Rosa and the children were at the hospital. And it's said that when the doctor, along with his medical staff, visited LaToya and the children in a room at his hospital, the two young boys began to curse at him in strange, low voices. Everyone obviously found this to be pretty odd. The doctor took scrupulous notes while he spoke to the family about their experiences at the house, all the while feeling quite uncomfortable as these kids are just grilling him, um, you know, so much so that he had his staff nearby. And while the boys were going off on the guy, the youngest one was, well, as a DCS report put it, lifted and thrown into the wall with nobody touching him. And right after that happened... Both the boys suddenly went comatose and could not be woken up. Latoya and Rosa held each boy respectively as the medical staff were absolutely shocked at what they saw. Dr. Anyuku would go on to say, 20 years and I've never heard uh, anything like that in my life. I was scared myself when I walked into the dark room. No, don't eat the pudding pops, Theo. No, Theo, not the pudding pops. Now, you know, Theo, when you sit down with me to play Parcheesi, you gotta play by the rules, boy. Sit your nappy-headed ass down in that seat, Theo. Don't pat the young girls on the ass, boy. No, don't eat the pudding pops, Theo. No, Theo, not the pudding pops. Theo, Theo, no, 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 Theo, put the packs upside down, Theo. I can't do it. <laughs> you set, set the lid in the box, Theo. Sit down and stop talking to me, boy. <laughs> oh man, 
Dr. Aniuku. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. So that was when someone at the doctor's office called 911. And almost immediately, about seven or eight cops showed up with at least two ambulances. Now, nobody had a clue as to what was going on, but the boys were rushed to the Methodist hospital. And once there, LaToya was requesting that the nursing staff use olive oil to draw the sign of the cross on her son's foreheads. She recalls that the entire staff simply paused for a moment in silence and then broke out in synchronous laughter. Oh, well, what do you think uh, they were laughing at? It could be that they just don't like olive oil, or maybe they saw the label and noticed that it wasn't extra virgin cold-pressed olive oil, because that could be laughable in a certain situation. Oh, that's true, that's true. Yeah, like when I want a kale salad with carrot and ginger with a few parsnips and turnips with radish garnish, and then the waiter comes up to me, all authoritative and shit, just to drizzle some single hot press olive oil on my beautiful salad, where it has no place being anywhere near it. God, that just grinds my gears. That grinds my gears just hearing that. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's one of the last times I paid $20 for a salad, so now I just pay 15 That sounds like a great salad, though. Okay. And then it was suggested that LaToya undergo a psychiatric evaluation while her sons were being assisted by medical staff. The psychiatrist who observed LaToya quickly determined that she was of quote-unquote sound mind. After an indeterminable amount of time at the hospital, both boys would regain consciousness, but the youngest only thrashed around and screamed uncontrollably. And this is also around the time that Valerie Washington would arrive on scene. Oh, shit. Valerie Washington was a no-nonsense DCS case manager and was sent to the hospital to handle the situation. You see, the unnamed person who called the DCS also alleged that LaToya was suffering from mental illness and believed that her children were all acting out in accordance to LaToya's demands, saying that the children were simply doing what their mother was telling them to do and the entire thing was a sham, fraudulent smoke and mirrors. Whoa, that is quite the allegation. I wonder where that person got those ideas from. Um, But what if it's true? I don't know. It's just like there's a lot there. A lot to unpack there for sure. So like I said, LaToya was looked over by one of the hospital's psychiatrists and deemed to be of sound mind. So this quickly dissipated any major concerns for Valerie on that particular matter. In fact, she produced a DCS report that stated the following. Hospital personnel examined LaToya Amons and her children and found them to be healthy and free of marks or bruises. A hospital psychiatrist evaluated Amons and determined she was of sound mind. So after the children were cleared by the hospital staff, Valerie then began her casework with the boys. She said that while she was talking with the boys in one of the rooms, the youngest boy started to growl, like burying his teeth at her and growling. Oh man, little devil. Then his eyes rolled into the back of his head, showing only the whites. Oh, just like the movies. I, I mean, I'm going to be honest. If I saw that, that would freak me the fuck out it would for freak sure. freak me out. Hell yeah. See that in the street somewhere? <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. He then turned to his older brother and wrapped his hands around his throat, choking him, with the older brother putting up no resistance. The adults in the room had to literally pry his hands away from his brother's neck. Once that situation settled down a little bit and everyone sort of gathered themselves... Valerie and a registered nurse with the hospital, Willie Lee Walker, would bring the two boys into a small exam room to continue the interview. Rosa also accompanied them. Again, the younger boy started to growl and again looked at his brother, staring him directly in the eyes, and said in a deep voice, 
It's time to die. I will kill you. And this is when shit really hits the fan. Oh man, I guess. Boy. The older brother would then turn to his grandmother, Rosa Campbell, and start headbutting her in the stomach. Oh. Rosa grabbed the boy's hands with both of hers and started to pray. Oh. And as she did so, the boy showed a really strange grin, as reported by the witnesses, and then walked backward up the wall to the ceiling where he was completely upside down and then flipped over his grandmother and landed on his feet, never letting go of Rosa's hand, and then just remained there as if nothing had happened. Whoa. I just... I can't... I have no words. That's This is just crazy. And the police would later ask Valerie if the boy had run up the wall, like had a running start and just ran up the wall um, on, onto the ceiling as if he was performing an acrobatic stunt because, you know... That happens all the time, running backward up a wall and onto the ceiling. Yeah, I like how they ask, like, oh, he just ran up the wall? Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, anybody can just, you know, run up a wall. Yeah, backward. Backward. Yeah, that happens all the time. So Valerie would reaffirm that the nine-year-old boy had, quote-unquote, glided backward on the floor, wall, and ceiling. And her statements were not ignored. They were put into official police reports, and as I mentioned earlier, there are over 800 pages of official police reports on this entire case, including the house itself, which the police officers and DCS officials would visit while conducting their investigations, not only into the allegations of child abuse, child neglect, and mental illness, but also into the seemingly very real paranormal experiences that many professional people had been witness to. Valeria said that when she saw the boy do that shit, she immediately ran out of the room, convinced that there was something evil attached to the family. Registered nurse Willie Walker was at her heels. Legitly, if I saw that, I would have been gone too. would have been like, peace! Valerie would write into her own report with the DCS the fact that Willie Walker would go to find a certain doctor and told them what had just happened. And this doctor then went to the boy and asked the boy to do it again. Unfortunately, the boy could not remember anything about walking backward up the wall and onto the ceiling. So Walker himself believed that the boy's stunt had, quote, unquote, some demonic spirit to it. He also believed that it was a result of some form of mental illness. Of course. Got it. <laughs> Doctor's just like, can't explain it. The kid's retarded. You see a kid walk backward up a wall and onto the ceiling and then flip over. And then you just say that was demonic and the kid has a mental illness. Yeah, that's <laughs> really, really just... I mean, I know, like, if somebody did legitly see that, I'm sure they were in shock to some degree and just, like, throwing random stuff out there maybe without thinking about it too much. But it just makes zero sense. Like, oh, yeah, it's, uh, when he was walking on the wall especially, it just struck me as really mentally ill. Okay, walking backward up a wall. All right. So now everyone must have been entirely beat from such a crazy day, right? Oh, I, I mean, bet. holy yeah, shit. I bet everyone was just, like, spent. Latoya decided that she would stay the night at the hospital with the youngest boy, while Rosa would take the other two children and go to a relative's house. The next day was the youngest boy's eighth birthday. Now, the, Depar the Department of Child Services called Rosa and asked her to bring the other children back to the hospital under the impression that they would all go over, you know, what had happened the night before, and then they would celebrate the boy's eighth birthday. Aww. But after the celebration... Valerie told the family that the children would be placed under the custody of the DCS. Whoa, what? It wouldn't be forever, though. Oh, well, all right. 
DCS did, however, take the children without a court order. Oh, what? But under certain situations, there can be sort of an emergency intervention, and Valerie thought that this situation fell under that emergency situation. Oh, okay, I see. But the children all begin to cry hysterically from being ripped apart from their mother and grandmother. Oh, what? And Valerie would put into her report that all the children were experiencing spiritual and emotional distress. Oh, okay. So she just takes them without warning, tricks the grandmother into bringing the other kids there under the pretense that they're going to talk about all this weird stuff that's like very clearly happening that she even witnessed. But then she just takes the kids away from them. The callousness, man. Yeah, I mean, she saw what happened. She made reports about it. She made the statements to police officers that it was not normal for the boy to glide backward up a wall and onto the ceiling. That's a quote. She made the statements that there was evil attached to the family, and then she just goes and takes the kids without warning. Yeah, it's just handling it all backward. I mean, it's not like the parents, like Latoya was there pushing her son up the wall or something. Right. You know, but she's like, we got to get these kids away from this woman. It yeah. makes me think maybe... They caught on, like, all right, these kids might have a demonic presence to it. And so the government was like, all right, get the oh, kids. Oh, yeah. Let's study yeah. these kids. Let's start. Yeah, totally. Totally. You know? So Latoya would say about all of this. We've already, we've already been, through so, been through so much and fought so hard, fought so hard for, our lives. for our lives. It was obvious we were a team and we were beating it. Whatever we were fighting, we made it through together as a team. As a team. And, and they, they separated, separated us. us. The thing was, Valerie and the DCS would actually find that LaToya had been neglecting her children's education. And they would use that as the justification to take the children. Dang. Yeah, yeah. Just wasn't taking them to school you, or something. You gotta be writing those words, man. You gotta be practicing those letters every day. Cursive. Cursive, Cursive. Bro. Cursive. I can't say it enough. I'll say it again. Cursive. What is cursive? What is cursive? Uh, uh, what uh, is it? Uh, Latoya and Rosa were adamant that they were not neglecting the children's education, but that it was all due to the paranormal stuff going on, which prevented them from being able to study or attend school. Which, yeah, of course. And they were completely absent from school. You know, they, they might have missed a pretty decent chunk through this period of time, but, you know, they still went occasionally. And so now, as Latoya and the children were being possessed by demons, there would be another possession happening. The DCS would take full possession of the three children. Oh, I, I like what you did there, man. That's uh, that's good. On the other side of town, on April 20th, 2012. Yeah, I was uh, definitely surrounded by what could only be described as thick clouds of smoke. Um, and I was probably eating something as yeah. well. Yeah, of course. On that day, Reverend Michael was conducting a Bible study at his house. Michael would get a call from the chaplain at the hospital who had caught wind of something fierce right before he made the call to Michael. Well, the chaplain would give Michael all the juicy details of the previous night's events. The chaplain would ask Reverend Michael if he would go to the house on 3860 Carolina Street in Gary, Indiana and perform the rite of exorcism on the nine-year-old boy. So on the 22nd of April, he would go to that house but find that the boy was not there. Ah, yes. DCS got him. Instead, Reverend Michael would interview Rosa and LaToya, and for two hours they explained everything that had happened to them. At one point, a bathroom light started to flicker. This flicker would stop every time the Reverend walked over to it. This he attributed 
to a demonic presence. Absolutely. 100%. The interview would continue, but again, it would be interrupted by something else. This time, it was the Venetian blinds in the kitchen that started to swing when there was no source for wind or a strong enough air current. The Reverend Michael would state that he unequivocally saw wet footprints all throughout the living room, just as Rosa had before. He said they seemed to appear out of nowhere. Latoya then started to get a headache, and the Reverend pressed his crucifix against her head as he prayed, and when he did this, she began to convulse. <laughs> oh, awkward. That would be an awkward moment. Well, for some, I guess, but probably not for the Reverend, if you know what I mean. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I I don't think Latoya is quite as tight. Yeah, she's probably too old. And so after the crucifix pressing, which caused full body spasms, they quickly stopped doing that after about eight or nine subsequent pressings of the crucifix. <laughs> yeah, you got to get those last, the eighth and the ninth one in there. Yep. Just get a few Let's more. Let's try it one more. Let's just try it again real quick. Oh, that one's working too. Once the four-hour interview with Latoya and Rosa was concluded, Reverend Michael left the house utterly convinced that the family was indeed being tortured by demons. But, but, Scott. Yes, tell me. Tell me now. Remember that little scenario we had earlier about how the clairvoyants said there were precisely 200 demons, and we were like, but not even one ghost? <laughs> yeah, not even, like, one lonely spirit hanging out over there by the yucca in the corner, just just trying to fit in, you know, the, next to the ficus. Well, my friend, Reverend Michael said that while there were certainly many demons in the house, there were also some ghosts. But he didn't elaborate on the number of ghosts that he felt were there. Figures. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, guys, there's definitely some ghosts in here, you know? <laughs> definitely some ghosts. Right. Before he left the house, he read from the Bible, he prayed, and he sprinkled some of that top-shelf Diamalfi Limoncello Supreme holy water that fetches for a measly $44 million in each of the rooms as he did so. He also looked to both Rosa and Latoya, looked straight into their eyes, and said, Leave. It's no longer safe here. Or something like that. They would go stay with the relative for the time being while the reverend returned to the harem with all-you-can-drink sleepy time tea. Oh man, loosen your collars and vestments. Things are literally popping off. Less than a week later, Latoya and Rosa would return to the house because Valerie Washington and another DCS case manager, Samantha Illick, and two Lake County police officers accompanying them wanted to see the house. The officers also brought along a police dog. There were two other officers as well, one from Gary and one from Hammond, two different police departments, and they wanted to join up and take along strictly out of quote-unquote professional curiosity. That's, uh... It's quite the random gathering. It's like really an assortment of different types there. The children were still somewhere in DCS custody, being held, probably studied, with all these machines connected to them. And... Oh, yeah, just electrodes up the wazoo. So when the time came to enter the house, LaToya flat out refused to go in. Surprisingly, Valerie Washington also decided against going inside. Instead, Samantha Illick, in her professional capacity, chose to go in instead of Valerie, and she was probably scared shitless. Yeah, I'm sure that all of them were a little bit weirded out, not only because of the people, but I'll bet you the house kind of looked kind of creepy too. I just, I don't know why. I just get this like really creepy vibe from the description of the house itself. There are pictures. You can Google those. They are creepy. And the cops actually did photograph the inside of the house, all you know, downstairs, upstairs. And those are posted online. You can see those everywhere. And they're creepy. Excellent. Excellent. So first, one of the officers took the trained police dog around the house to see if they could pick up anything. But it did not. And the others went inside while the dog 
you know, did its thing. And here's the layout of the inside of the house. The main floor of the house had three bedrooms, a living room, and one bathroom. Every room had hardwood floors, and the kitchen was open style. There was also one door in the kitchen that led to the basement below. Wow, that sounds like a pretty nice house, all in all. I mean, you know, minus the ghosts and stuff. Underneath the stairs was a dirt floor, but all around it was concrete that looked like it had been busted up. The makeshift altar was still down there as well, with half rings of salt connecting to the wall around the altar. Rosie would tell everyone there that the demons seemed to come from beneath the stairs. So the police officers that were there for you know professional curiosity brought with them audio recorders to record the interview while at the house. The batteries in one of these recorders went instantly dead, even though they were fresh batteries, which is very common in these sorts of hauntings, for the batteries to drain. One of the other officers had their own recorder going, and when he played it back later, a very clear voice could be heard that was none of theirs. And it clearly said, Hey. Uh, well? Um, what are you guys up to, man? Like, say, any of you want to play a good game of, like, bridge or something, man? No? Hello? Can you hear me? Man, this is really boring being little ghosts around here. All those demons really make this place feel great. Hey, ghost, why don't you go get us some more beer, huh? Yeah, yeah, you stupid ghost. Ghostly and stuff. Hanging out over there by that impressive philodendron in the corner, all alone. Yeah, it's kind of a really nice plant, though. I like the aesthetic. Who the hell let this fucking ghost in here anyways? <laughs> it's part of that inner realm exchange program that Satan and God are doing right now. Really progressive move and all that. Oh, yeah. Wonderful program. Really good time. Uh, nah, man. Thanks. But I think I'll just hang out over here, man. Thanks, though. I really appreciate it. Man, this place really sucks. The officer who took that recording of the hay also took a bunch of photographs from inside and outside of the house. In one of the pictures he took of the creepy-ass basement stairs, there was a prominent cloudy white figure in the upper right-hand corner. Now another officer would enlarge that photo later, and they noticed that the cloudy figure had what appeared to be a face. And in that enlarged image, the police would say that a second figure, which had a green color, looked like a female. <laughs> looked like a female. I think that's uh, pretty silly. <laughs> They're like, oh, what, what is are those some uh, ghostly tits? Oh, yeah, you know. What looks female about this green color? <laughs> looks like a you chick. <laughs> I'm pretty sure these are male officers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think that's what's called reaching or grasping for straws or something. Yeah, grasping for something. According to the police reports, Reverend Michael wanted to check underneath the stairs for a pentagram or any objects that someone might have placed there as a curse. Michael said that a pentagram might indicate the presence of demons and even more possibly a portal to hell, according to police reports. Jeez, these guys sure like go to a grim place. Like I, I almost feel like first they weren't taking it seriously, and then now it's just like it's going to an extreme place. Yeah, and he also suspected that someone, a person, a human being, might have been buried underneath the stairs. So obviously, what do you do when you think there's a body there? You start digging with your hands, and one of the officers dug a deep hole in the dirt to look for signs of anything weird. And guess what, Scott? What? In this four-foot-by-three-foot hole underneath the stairs. He dug that? Using his hands? Sure, but they found a lid for a small cooking pan. Oh. 
Okay, yeah, lid for a cooking pan. And they found some socks that were cut off right below the ankle. Socks, okay. And they found some candy wrappers. Sure. And I'm not sure what kind, but I'm guessing uh, Tootsie Roll. Okay, sure. And they found a small heavy metal object that could have been a weight to some drapery cords. Uh, I'm thinking probably fish tackle, but yeah, okay. And they found a pink press-on fingernail. Starting to get lost at the pink fingernail, but okay. They found a political pin. Again, I'm not sure who was on it, but I suspect Sarah Palin or Janet Reno. I could see that. And they also found a pair of white women's panties. The state of condition is unknown. Well, for some reason, that is like the least surprising of the things that they found. I'm not sure why that is, but that's just I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, women's panties buried in the basement. <laughs> totally normal. So satisfied with their collection. Oh, well, yeah. How could you not be? They filled the hole in and did some other investigating around the house. While upstairs, at some point, the group would be lingering around the living room talking about the creepiness of it all. And that's when Samantha started complaining about a real intense tingling in her pinky finger, which then started to turn white as if the blood circulation was being cut off somehow. She said it felt broken. That's how much it hurt. About ten minutes later, she started having a panic attack and couldn't breathe, so she rushed past everyone and exited the house. Another article by DailyMail.com says that she touched a weird oily substance first and then experienced all that stuff with her pinky. But the oily substance did exist. As the officers were walking around the main floor, they came to one of the bedrooms and spotted the oily stuff dripping from the Venetian blinds. They couldn't tell where it was coming from, and they suspected that either Latoya or Rosa poured it there. So they took paper towels and cleaned it off of everything. They then sealed off the room and stood guard to make sure nobody went inside for about 25 minutes. When they went back inside to inspect it, they were shocked to find that the oily substance returned, but they couldn't find any apparent source, according to police records. It's just kind of funny because if it was truly like olive oil or something like that, you know, like the priest told them to scatter, it's really hard to get off of shit, especially with any kind of like water or anything. Because I just like don't foresee them having anything stronger than that. And they're just like, oh, it's weird. It's not going away. <laughs> yeah, they just like, threw yeah, so yeah, much oil, oil everywhere. So much oil like to cleanse yeah, the house to cleanse the with house. the bleach, oh, the ammonia. That's my, uh, that's my guess. I, I think it was just the olive oil from before. But eh, you know. We don't know. The reverend would say that the oily stuff was a manifestation of a paranormal or demonic presence. Of course he would. He thought a flickering light was demonic. And the reverend would also write his own report on his experience at the house, and it's pretty lengthy, but it's certainly an interesting read. So we went ahead and put a link into our show notes or the episode description or whatever. So go check that out. But in short, he wrote his report and sent a copy to Bishop Dale Milchek of the Diocese of Gary and asked him to perform a rite of exorcism on Latoya. And he had not authorized an exorcism in 21 years at that point. Well, I do suppose that shows that he is taking, or at least was taking the situation quite seriously. They're definitely taking it seriously. And the police officers continued to inspect the house, but it was well into the evening now, and it was starting to get dark. One of the officers who, you know, he's been... He's been in a lot of situations, such as, you know, being shot at and all the confrontations that a cop generally encounters in the line of work. Well, you know, he made it clear to everyone that he was getting the hell out of the house before it got dark. He did not want to be in there. I wouldn't want to be in there either. That guy sounds smart. And that pretty much wrapped up their paranormal investigation. 
So as they went off and wrote up all their reports, over 800 pages worth, the Reverend wanted to perform a minor exorcism on LaToya, one that did not need the church's authorization, but he wasn't sure how to go about it. So he contacted a few priests around the town to consult with them on how to perform one of these minor exorcisms. And basically, they suggested that he look it up on the internet. <laughs> <They're> just... <laughs> I love that. That's their professional opinion. They're like, you know what, man? Just Google search exorcisms. Ah, you'll find. You'll find something. Google just it. Google it. Just Google boobs. Google boobs. What are you doing over that? Googling boobs. What are you doing? Uh, you know, just googling boobs. What you got? Is that, is that a Google boob? Is that, a, is that a pair of Google boobs? <laughs> Google it. Google it. He then went to work and performed one of these minor exorcisms on Latoya right there on the spot in the front yard in the open neighborhood. This ritual consisted of some prayers and some statements. Go on, get. Get out of there, man. Go. Yeah. Two of the officers and Samantha Illick would stay for the exorcism and would provide the necessary background chanting, which was speaking in tongues. <laughs> Samantha said that within one month after visiting the home, she broke three ribs jet skiing. She got third degree burns from a motorcycle. She broke her ankle running in flip flops. I feel like any sorority girl at a college in Arizona could boast the same exact maladies <laughs> on any given weekend of the school year. And she broke her hand after hitting a table. And I'm not sure if she punched it or like the table fell on her or what. I don't know. She was probably playing beer pong. She was bouncing the ping pong ball off oh, the just table. just bounced it too hard. Yeah, just broke <laughs> yeah. that pinky bone right there, the oh. handle, like a boxer fracture, fracture. So LaToya would later undergo three more exorcisms. These were said to be more powerful than the first one out in the front yard on 3860 Carolina Street in Gary, Indiana. They were actually authorized by the Catholic Church, which they don't do often. The situation and circumstances have to be pretty convincing for the church to authorize one. And Reverend Michael would perform two of the exorcisms in English and then one in Latin. These all took place at the Merrillville Church in Gary. Oh man, that's like my favorite of all of the churches in Gary, Merrillville Church. That's the one I would love to go to again. This is a portion of what he would do. First, he would press a crucifix to her head. He loves that part. <laughs> and then he would speak the following words. I cast you uh, out, you unclean spirit. Um, yeah, 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 unclean spirit. Along with every satanic power of the enemy. Yeah, yeah. And every specter um, from hell. Yeah, and all your fellow companions and things in... In uh, the name of our, uh, our, uh, um, our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoo, fuck! That is tough every time, and it just gets tougher. <laughs> yeah, he uh didn't Google the best exorcism chant. I guess he needs to <laughs> search up a different yeah, one. He needs to do some work on that stuff. So in between the second and the third exorcism, Reverend Michael would go on a vacation, like some cruise somewhere in the Bahamas. Well, actually, I don't know. But he did say he went on a retreat, so. Uh, yeah, you know, I'd probably want a vacation after I was told to Google exorcisms and then I had to perform three of them on the same woman. But there was a backup plan. 
The Reverend had a female assistant to take over while he was away. What this woman did was she wrote a demon's name on a piece of paper and put it in an envelope and sealed it. She then circled it with salt. The plan was that if Latoya had any further problems, you know, while the Reverend was out doing his thing, this assistant would burn the envelope with the demon's name. What was the demon's name? Well, we don't know because the Reverend couldn't remember. Oh, he must have stayed out on the strip a little bit too late, I guess. He's like, I exercised yesterday in the gym. (laughs) (laughs) This is also around the time that LaToya and Rosa would move to Indianapolis, Indiana. Such an awesome place, dude. I have a great time every time I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana. She would drive back to Gary for the exorcisms, though, and for the hearings to get her children back from the DCS. The Reverend would also bless their new home. But while the Reverend was on his little getaway vacation, he was interrupted by a phone call. It was LaToya. God damn it, LaToya. Every time, I swear. LaToya was complaining about horrible nightmares, and so the Reverend would call his assistant, who had the demon's name in an envelope, and directed her to burn the entire thing and then collect the ashes. These ashes would then be burned further in a church bonfire. Wow, they were uh, really covering their bases with that one. And Scott. Yes, I am right here and not figuring out 17 down with a T as the fourth letter, an S as the eighth letter, and a Y as the last. God damn it, man. And guess what happened? Um, She burst into flame? Latoya said that the nightmares stopped. What? Well, good for her, man. Yeah, I'm glad. In her last exorcism, which was the one read in Latin, the reverend said he ruthlessly berated the demons in their native tongue, and as he did so, Latoya would thrash and convulse, accompanied with shrieks and other guttural sounds, but he said she did not do so when he prayed over her. All right, now, is that a good thing, or... Because I'm having a hard time telling. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I would think that the demons would hate a Catholic prayer, right? Yeah. That's how it's always portrayed in the movies and shit, so I'm not sure what that means. Like, why would they yeah. be pissed that he's berating them, but not pissed by giving them the Lord's Prayer? Yeah, well, maybe we have a listener that is a demonologist that maybe can help us solve that riddle. So if you're a listener of this show and you've been following along, and we hope to God that you are, we sure do. And you're a demonologist or work along those lines, please email us at paranautica at gmail.com. That's P-A-R-A-N-A-U-G-H-T-I-C-A at gmail.com. And let us know, why didn't the demons care about the prayer, but they hated it when the reverend ridiculed them? Yes, fast. We need to know. And we want the world to know this crucial piece of information. Absolutely. This is more of a public service announcement than anything, so please let us know. Then LaToya fell asleep. And as she lay there looking so peaceful in the much-needed respite, the Reverend offered words of condolences. And that, Scott, would be the last time that LaToya would see Reverend Michael. After that last rite of exorcism, she and her mother Rosa would drive back to their new home, where they now felt the safety and security that they all prayed feverishly for. It was all over, finally. Whew, man, what a ride. As for the house on 3860 Carolina Street in Indiana, it had a new tenant. Oh, do tell. In fact, the landlord, Charles Reed, 
had to call Gary's police department to ask that the officers stop cruising along Carolina Street to gawk at the house because it was making the new tenant extremely uncomfortable. Could you imagine you're just sitting in there always looking through the blinds <laughs> like, is that another one? And then like a little while later, just like another one, you're like, what the f- is this some kind of a mafia hit or what's going on? Shining their spotlights at the house. <laughs> hey, look at that. <laughs> yeah, right. Look at that, Jason. Look at that. Shit, Doing man. just the one little woo whoop. I <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> every time. Because they think the tenant's like is stoked that you know cops are keeping patrol of yeah, the neighborhood. Yeah. Totally. But tenant's like motherfuckers, man. I'm trying to do some illegal shit here, man. Got a meth lab. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> New tenants in the basement. Just like God damn it, man. I don't know if I'm just been up for two weeks or if that's really the eighth cop yeah. that's come by here. So about six months after the DCS took the children from Latoya, they were finally returned to her. The DCS remained involved for some time to ensure that they were attending school and everything was going smoothly at the new house. And the new DCS case manager, Christina Olajnik, would write in her notes during a family meeting on January 10th, 2013, quote, no demonic presences or spirits in the home, end quote. Apparently, things have been fine since then, and it's been about 10 years, and there's even a movie being made about the entire case. And so LaToya, you know, she actually sold the rights to her story in 2014. And I'm not sure on the amount there. But I am sure that it was far less than what Netflix paid for it just last year in 2022. There were apparently six or seven production companies bidding on the story. Oh, no shit. That's crazy. Yeah, shit. And Netflix outbid them all and reportedly paid right around 65 million U.S. dollars for the rights to that story. Whoa. To this story. That's so crazy. What's, what's the name of it, actually? <sighs> well, you got me. <laughs> That's all right. I want to ask. I want to <laughs> In the end, though, LaToya would say that it was not the psychologists or the prescription drugs that fixed everything. It was God. Really? But the TV says that prescription drugs will fix everything. Man, they really do. Also, DCS ended their case about six months, and the children were reunited with LaToya and Rosa at their new home in Indianapolis. Oh, happy ending. Okay, so remember how Zach Baggins bought the demon house packed full with 200 demons? Ah, uh, and one ghost. Yes. Well, after he filmed his documentary, Demon House, in 2014, he felt that the house could no longer stand. It had to be demolished. Oh, why? Well, let's let Zach explain it. Zach, if you would. Something was inside that house that had the ability to do things that I have never seen before. Things that others, carrying the highest form of credibility, couldn't explain either. There was something there that was very dark, yet highly intelligent and powerful. I destroyed the house because I do not want anyone to ever live there again. I saw too many things, and there was something inside the house that affected everyone. The police, clergy, children, my production crew, everyone. Thanks, Zach. Mr. Baggins, thank you for that. Yeah, we appreciate you uh, uh, coming here for that. That actually, uh, just so you know, that's going to cost us quite a bit of money. But uh, we're definitely in the red. We're (laughs) definitely in the red because of that one. But hey, it was dramatic, and I loved it. And we had we had Zach with us for a moment. That's awesome. Thank you, Zach. Today, that location, thirty eight sixty Carolina Street in Gary, Indiana, is just an empty lot. Just a sad empty lot. 
I mean, there is some, there's a little grass there, but I mean, it's, it's a desolate lot with a house on either side of it. Yeah, you know, just a house on either side, and all that's left is just just a dusty trail, some footprints. People used to come and go a little bit, and sometimes you know a breeze kicks up, and you almost see the outline of just like. Maybe some kids playing on the grass, but you realize there's really nothing there at all. It's just just a feeling, really. It's all you get. There's nothing to speak of, nothing to look at. Just an empty lot. Just an empty lot. Dirt, a little bit of grass. Man. Damn. But... That completes part two of the story of LaToya Amons in the House of Horror at 3860 Carolina Street in Gary, Indiana. Wow. I feel like we really went on quite a journey with that one. And we cannot thank you all enough for tuning into the show, and we hope that you all enjoyed this episode. So please, before you do anything else, just click that subscribe button and be notified when each new episode hits the airwaves, which is by Thursday every week, Pacific Time. And remember, the best way to help spread the Paranautica podcast, which we want you to do so bad, is by word of mouth. Get out there, hit the street, tell everyone, the bank teller, the cashier, the pedicurist the mechanic your doctor at your prostate exam and your breast augmentation even the pizza delivery person or the uber driver literally tell everyone and we'll have stickers soon and also don't forget to like and share us wherever you listen to these podcasts and email us let us know some stories that you'd like to hear or like to hear us cover and maybe you just need to vent or maybe you want to tell us that we're shitty pieces of shit but you but you probably don't yeah, don't uh, do that. So we love don't you. Do don't that. don't hate us. We love you guys. <laughs> but you can also go over to Twitter and follow place. us over there. Our handle is at Paranautica. You can also check out our Facebook page at The Paranautica Podcast. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, hermanas y hermanos, amigos y amigas, have a great week ahead of you and try to accomplish something positive that has the greatest impact on the most people. Yes, we always advocate for helping one another here. So go out, walk uncomfortably close behind a stranger, and wait for your moment to do a good deed. Go out and walk. Oh, and by the, by the way, the stickers, uh, we actually did get those delivered. So Whoa. we actually posted uh, pictures of those on the like Facebook it. page. Go check those out, and uh, maybe we can uh, send you guys some if uh, Hell yeah. you want. That's what's up. Until next week. Until next week. Stay safe. Stay safe. Safe.